Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable by medical practices. In this episode, we're talking with an expert neurologist on the topic of headache. Headache is an extremely common symptom. Collectively, headache disorders are among the most common of the nervous system disorders. Around 95% of the general population have experienced a headache at some stage in their life, and the one-year prevalence is about one in every two adults. Headache accounts for up to one in 10 general practitioner consultations. It remains a common reason for neurology referrals, and in Europe, up to 4% of emergency department visits, of which migraine is the most common. The World Health Organization includes headache among the top 10 causes of disability. And whilst the impact on the economy and an individual's quality of life may be difficult to quantify, in the case of migraine, up to 75% of patients report functional disability during an attack, and about 50% require the help of family and friends during the headache. Well, headaches are not discriminatory, affecting people of all ages, race, and socioeconomic status, but are more common in women. Headaches are generally thought of in terms of being acute or chronic. Acute headaches may be new and severe and could suggest a critical intracranial pathology such as an aneurysm or meningitis. Chronic headaches are usually divided into primary headaches such as migraine, cluster and tension type or secondary, which could reflect intracranial pathology also such as a space-occupying lesion or following a head injury, but also reflect cervical spondylosis, dental and ocular disorders, sinusitis, hypertension, depression, TMJ dysfunction, temporal arteritis, medication side effect, etc. During consultation with patients, questions about when the headache first started, frequency and type, length of duration, any recent change in the characteristic of the headaches, their intensity, location and quality of pain, associated symptoms such as nausea and vomiting aggravating and relieving factors, as well as associated presence of neurological symptoms such as visual and sensory changes, alterations of speech, may all be helpful in determining a diagnosis. Migraine often exhibits a complex polygenic pattern of inheritance, as well as an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance in the case of familial hemiplegic migraine. In this conversation with expert headache and movement disorder specialist Dr. Michael Eller from Richmond Neurology, I was curious to dive more deeply into the world of chronic primary headaches of the migraine and cluster type. The new and emerging understanding of the pathophysiology of these headaches is fascinating, as is the developing approach to treatment focused on inhibition of the neurotransmitter called calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP. This peptide is inhibited by the 5-HT1D and 1B receptor agonist effects of the tryptans, as well as a new family of CGRP targeting drugs and monoclonal antibodies developed for the preventative treatment of migraine. These drugs are available in Australia for patients who have had chronic migraine, defined as 15 headache days, of which eight are migraine, for at least three months, and failed three more traditional medications used for migraine treatment, such as propranolol, topiramate, and amitriptyline. The prescription is prescribed by a neurologist. Well, in introducing our guest, Dr. Ella, completed his medical degree at the University of Sydney in 2003 after a Bachelor of Science and Arts, his interest in archaeology, neuroscience, infectious diseases and Indigenous health. 
and has volunteered as an aid worker in remote locations, including Papua New Guinea, as well as training from 2012 to 2014 at the University of California, San Francisco, under Professor Peter Goesby. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation, so please welcome Michael to the podcast. So, Dr. Michael Eller, thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine, and I've dragged you from a very busy day, uh, and I've been hounding you for weeks. So, thank you for your patience, Michael, and, you know, I really am honoured to talk with you because you're one of Melbourne's experts uh, in the field of, of neurology, particularly headaches and know, movement disorders. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started the recording about, you know, our kind of journeys in medicine and what has interested us. C- can you, before we talk about headaches, which are big issue for, for patients and, and often a conundrum for primary practitioners to manage. Before we get into that very detailed subject, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I actually studied at science arts before I did medicine. Um, wanted to be an archaeologist or, or a neuroscientist um, or more of a humanities person. Um, and, and at some stage decided that medicine was a really good mix and blend of, of those different elements, uh, which I think it's proved to be, um, and neurology in particular has proved to be that blend. So um, I think it's the, it's, it's the right gig for me. Um, my, uh, my sort of in qualifying medicine and then the journey to become a neurologist uh, was, a, was fairly variegated. I've done quite a lot of remote work in Indigenous Australia over a few years. Stopped doing that in the last four years, but um, that that's been something I've been involved with. I've worked in New Guinea, doing um, doing some aid work as well, uh, and um, I've just been interested in in a lot of acute acute medicine um, and uh, infectious diseases and tropical medicine, indigenous medicine, and um, and all the challenges that that holds. And within the neurology space, more specifically, um, you know, a very dynamic and evolving field with so many different parts. Part of the reason I got attracted to headache, which um, you know uh, hasn't sort of necessarily had its fair share of cha- uh, share of champions, but does have some significant um, people in the field in Australia. Um, I just saw this really large unmet need. A lot of people, particularly in their you know, in their most productive years, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, who were really laid low um, by this uh, by this difficulty um, and either misdiagnosed or, or perhaps not optimally managed um, or, or sort of brushed off. And I could see that there were many pathways to potentially help them. Now, I think that's really been borne out by some of the, some of the newer medicines that have come along, some of the newer treatment modalities, which in some ways has been a prompt not just to people within the field, but both to the wider community, but, you know, sufferers, uh, relatives of sufferers, friends of sufferers, um, and doctors themselves are now getting asked more questions. Well, you know, what is my problem and what can we do about it? So, um, and then, and I, I know I've taken this a long way from your initial question, but, you know, for the patients, you know, so, say with chronic migraine, most, we were the most, common of the patients that we see in our headache clinics. You know, someone that may have been dismissed as a bit of a whinger or 
um, you know, complaining or, uh, you know, maybe not the most resilient person or, or even just resilient, resilient but struggling. Um, you know, you start one of, you know, one of these new CTRP pathway medications, for example, and the headaches melt away. Um, and, you know, doctors and family members around them themselves can be really surprised at, at the flick of the switch. And they realize that maybe some of their assumptions around migraine and headache disorders weren't necessarily valid. So I've, I've picked that up from my own personal <laughs> journey and, and talked talk a very practical point about, uh, about uh, you know, why headache neurology is rewarding, I guess. <laughs> well, you sort of, you've been on the cusp of some new developments here. I'm interested in what you were doing in New Guinea, Mark. Well, that wasn't neurology then. Were you doing... Not a lot of neurology. I mean, I saw a little bit of it, but, you know, more related to uh, uh, tuberculoma or Guillain-Barre. No, that was, that, was, um, okay. that was just several months of aid work um, doing doing general medicine. Did you have to brush... Well, basically, ad- adult, adult and peds and obstetrics, uh, you know, sort of learning some of that on the fly. Yeah, that would have been very challenging. Did you have to brush mm. up your ID work before you? You always already had an interest in that, but did you have to brush up on that when you went to New Guinea? And... Yeah, for sure, uh, I did, um, and also brushed up the the kids stuff and uh, women's health stuff. Yeah, no, uh, some really interesting things. But you know, one of the uh, the things around working in uh, developing countries because the um, the thera- well the diagnostics are so threadbare. Uh, you're often um, working on probabilities and. Yes. Um, and final common pathways. So, you know, someone comes in fever looking unwell, you know, they're getting artemether and chloramphenicol. Yes. Um, whether you think they've got malaria or or, um, or, or bacterial um, pneumonia, yeah, for example. Right. Yeah. You also worked overseas, uh, Mark, I saw in your bio. You were in Los Angeles yeah. for, for a couple of years. Uh, uh, yeah, in San Francisco. Uh, so... I did a headache fellowship with uh, Peter Goadsby at UCSF um, in San Francisco and then spent another year on just sort of working on staff uh, and doing some research there. So that was where um, I guess I learned um, headache neurology uh, from from an expert. Um, Peter Goadsby himself cut his teeth at Prince of Wales in Sydney um, uh, and he learned from Jim Lance, who's a very esteemed Australian neurologist. So there's a lineage that runs through Prince of Wales and some people that have trained around Australia. So uh, he was one of the foremost headache experts, uh, uh, neurologists uh, in, in the world, particularly in the 60s and 70s, where he published widely um, and changed the landscape. So um, Australia actually has a long tradition um, in the space. How was your experience in America? I'm interested in, in that. I've, I've spoken to a couple of consultants who have trained in the United States and they found it, well, certainly very, very busy and a high expectation on the amount of hours that they would uh, they would put into their work. Was it extremely difficult? Was there a, was it kind of like a super normal uh, contribution that was expected from you or would you say... Not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily because I think it was a bit insulated as a fellow. Um, so, no, more it was... Uh, there was substantial resources uh, to do, to do you know, really engaging uh, research. You know, more resources than than we would easily uh, amalgamate in Australia. Um, good direction, good supports. Uh, a lot of the so that, I mean, the, there's that aspect of things. Um, 
No, I mean, I think if I was uh, if I was uh, working in a more clinical day to day capacity in a more stretched hospital or a more uh, you know on the ground capacity, may have been really pushed. But no, in some ways it was relatively insulated. So you know, more time and space than I'd have in Australia with patients. Um, you know, a lot of interaction with um, uh, with training neurologists, many of which had very limited exposure to. Uh, general medicine because they just don't do those um, you know that physician training prior so that's sort of interesting you know they don't have the same sort of context they can slot things into and the other thing is you know because it's one of the best sort of or, or, or the most uh, estimable uh, institutions pe- uh, people really try and get into there uh, a lot of high achievers most of them with PhDs by the time they're they're doing neurology they call themselves neurologists before they uh, before they graduate, <laughs> you know, out through the program, and um, and many of them can't show any loss of face. So, so interestingly, a lot of people have this brinkmanship where they'll confidently state the answer, even though they have absolutely no idea. <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. It's a different dynamic. Whereas in Australia, well, I think uh, people be a bit more humble and. Yeah. Less likely to even offer an opinion, even though they're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> did, did, you, did you come back craving? Just to typecast a little bit. Uh, have you come back craving clam chowder, Michael? Or is that something that's on your menu? Every- I wouldn't mind a bit more of it. They did, did a pretty good job down there. You know, it's probably more of a thing up the uh, northern part of the East Coast. But, you know, they, they do a couple of good ca- uh, clam chowders. Uh, it's two good places in San Francisco that did it well. Yeah. Well, I've only visited there and loved it, but uh, it's great to have you back here in Melbourne, obviously offering your expertise in headaches. What, what? Just take us through your approach when we sort of think about headaches. You know, I think you're going to just sort of discuss primary, secondary. Yeah. How should we be thinking about it before we sort of launch more into uh, focus more on migraine? Yeah, so it sort of depends on the clinical setting. Um, if you're a, a GP, for example, if someone's seeing you with troublesome headache which has been relatively long-standing but you know it bugs them and then motivated to see uh, a gp about it you know maybe not just once but a number of times they've probably got migraine um, because it's at least troublesome enough for them to take that step uh, thinking it's more than just a normal headache you'll hear that terminology a lot um, and they feel like oh there's something beyond that something else that needs to be addressed um, and then the doctor, either in that setting or, or even in a, in a hospital context, um, you know, the algorithm that you, you go through is, well, is this just, you know, a common primary headache, tension type headache or migraine or one of the less common ones like cluster headache, or is it, uh, is the phenomenology the same? Does it, does it look like either migraine with some light and sound sensitivity and nausea, or is it somewhat more bland with just discomfort without those additional features, uh, or with with visual, you know, visual aura, for example, aura occurs in about a quarter of people with migraine, or is there is there you know, regardless of those elements, is there something that is a red flag saying, well, maybe this is because of something else? So. Uh, there are a number of red flags. You'll see lists if you look at the literature, which can vary a little bit. Uh, but the the atmospheric is, if it's a very novel or different headache from the patient's perspective, you know, it feels 
particularly if they don't have a personal headache history, um, then you take it seriously and investigate a secondary headache. If uh, the more troublesome the headache is with uh, more difficult symptoms, you may up the ante in terms of investigation. So, for example, if I saw someone who never really had a personal history of headache, who had a you know thunderclap headache, terrible uh, abrupt onset, you know most doctors will know. Okay, you need to first up exclude a subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's the first thing you need to exclude. Uh, but if that's been excluded, there are several other potential causes, either of abrupt onset headache, you know, also known as thunderclap headache, worst headache of your life, or even just you know never had a headache before and then it built up uh, over a couple of days uh, and now it's really disabling. So you know, t- those patients would typically need uh, uh, MRI of the brain. Uh, possibly imaging of the full spine, probably a lumbar puncture, certainly in the case of mm. subarachnoid hemorrhage if it needs to be excluded. Um, uh, and then you're also thinking broadly about systemic uh, novel problems. Uh, so, you know, someone systemically unwell with a malignancy or infection, uh, uh, whether it be viral or bacterial, uh, whether the focus is related to the brain like an abscess or systemic and uh, part of the body's uh, perhaps inflammatory response or other reaction is is headache like with covid for example um the you you need to you know go go through all of those things um so there's a there's a long checklist of secondary headache you know of non-abrupt onset so whether it's uh, because of a drug because of an illness uh, because of a metabolic derangement uh, you know, change in oxygen or, or gas tension, you know, someone's hypoxic, usually pretty headachey, you know, um, yeah. stuff like there's a really broad uh, differential, which can become overwhelming people. But, you know, uh, we've all seen a lot of patients and uh, you, you just need to zero in on, on some of the clues of the presentation, uh, which might give you the high yield tests. Before patients are referred to you, Michael, are they normally subject to an MRI or CT of the brain? Do you find that you're seeing them because there's a problem with their management, or they need your expertise yeah. and the diagnosis? Is that are they norm, Like, is it helpful for them to have that brain imaging, ESR, just in case they've got temporal arteritis, all those sort of things before they get to you? Yeah. Good question. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So, someone with a just someone with a typical personal history of chronic migraine. Like a, a, say I was seeing a, a woman who's around 30, daily headache with exacerbations a couple of times a week, um, and she'd had an onset of headache uh, at Monarchy, uh, um, her sort of built-in frequency waxed and waned, and then in her late teenage years became more problematic, there may be occasional aura, uh, and her mother gets headaches, and uh, you know, her, maybe her maternal grandmother had really troublesome headaches all the time and was always you know, taking Bex powders, uh, someone like that um, doesn't need uh, cranial imaging, doesn't need an MRI brain or a CT brain. In fact, it's a marker of sort of uh, uh, resource allocation uh, that we don't irradiate patients like this and um, it was CT, particularly when they're younger, and uh, we're not doing routine MR because about 20% of them will have something on their MR, which is incidental and 
can pathologize them because most of the radiology re- reports are you know, rather, relatively defensively written and they can cause morbid, uh, more morbidity than anything else. Um, you know, occasionally you can pick up a problem, um, yes. but this is all assuming a normal uh, yes. neurological exam, of course, yes. normal physical exam, preferably with fundoscopy. Yeah. And if, if someone's not confident performing fundoscopy, at least getting the optometrist, uh, you know, to, to do that, uh, you know, the, with, the, with the new technology, they can get a really good view. Okay. Mm. Uh, I was very interested to read a little bit about migraine in relation to trigeminal nerve dysfunction. Um, yeah. I think I'm reading this correctly. And here yeah. this calcitonin gene-related um, peptide, which I have to say I was mm. particularly ignorant of all this stuff. Um, mm. Are you able to sort of take us through now a bit more about migraine, what we should know, what, what that trigeminal nerve dysfunction really means, what that calcitonin mm. gene-related peptide is? And then, you know, how this is all sort of put together and addressed clinically. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the, the pathophysiology of migraine has been contentious for a long time. And maybe conceive of it like this. Um, it's, a, it's a problem of sensory processing uh, with an associated pain syndrome, uh, which is, in, you know, uh, inherently involves uh, structures that perceive pain like uh, Trigeminal branches of the trigeminal nerve and branches of the uh, second cervical nerve root integrating uh, into a, a network brain dysfunction. So there's a, there's a network within the brain uh, in people with migraine where it that processing not just the pain but of other elements can become dysfunctional. So all these different uh, aspects of it. So I'll pass that out in a different way in a minute. Uh, the small proteins like calcitonin gene-related peptide are related to uh, neurovascular signaling. Uh, so, you know, release of those small peptides can cause vasodilatation in extra extracranial uh, arteries, for example, like the middle meningeal middle uh, middle meningeal artery. Uh, just for example, part of the reason why uh, you know for many years people thought. Uh, perhaps the issue with migraine is that it's a vascular disorder, primary vascular mm-hmm. disorder. Why yeah. medicines like tryptan, tryptan, for example, yeah. were developed to cause you know weak vasoconstrictors. Uh, it's not not the case. It's much more of a, a brain disorder, uh, but with which also could be perceived as a neurovascular disorder. Uh, when you look at the genetics, for example, it's enriched for. Uh, both neural elements and vascular elements. So uh, the integration of those systems uh, it relates to migraine. And another way to pick that apart, because I know there's a bit of complexity in that answer, um, is uh, you know when you think of a typical troublesome uh, epi- attack of episodic migraine, uh, the uh, in the lead up uh, to the actual pain with light and sound sensitivity and nausea, which most people recognize as migraine. Uh, Someone might have experienced neck discomfort or sweet or salt cravings. Um, uh, They might have thirst. They might feel agitated or fatigued or irritable. Um, And all of those different elements may reflect different uh, parts of that network that are dysfunctional, either the limbic system related to irritability 
uh, hypothalamus related to disruption of homeostasis, you know, uh, polydipsia, polyuria, for example, or change in bowel habits uh, in the lead up to a bad migraine. Um, and then some of those elements can be present right through the migraine and then subsequent to yeah, the headache phase, uh, which is also known as the postdrome. And, you know, that might be fatigue and just feeling washed out. And right throughout, just feeling a bit off in terms of the alacrity of your thinking. Your thinking might just be a little bit off. Uh, it's more effortful to, to do your job, for example. When we've passed that out, it's probably a dysfunction of attention. So all those different elements might reflect different elements of brain dysfunction. Now, why, why did we pick on calcitonin gene-related peptide, this small protein which mediates uh, one element of vasodilatation in one part of that entire network? Well, uh, circumstantial evidence uh, that uh, Peter Goadsby led in the 80s, uh, some, some data um, on cats, actually, I think, uh, where, you know, calcitonin gene-related peptide uh, goes up levels in the jugular vein go up significantly during a migraine ictus, come down significantly after. It's quite hard to sort of do the assays properly. Um, and by treating with medications like triptans, um, you can reduce calcitonin gene-related peptide levels. So these are quite circumstantial sort of bits of evidence. If you run CGRP uh, into a human, about 70% of them will develop or people prone to migraine anyway will develop a migraine. Yeah. So you can use, um, you know, these are like uh, provocative tests. Um, and it just turns out that if, if you either block the calcitonin gene, uh, sorry, it's the CGRP ligand itself, um, that's what three of the medicines that we have on the market can do, or you block the canonical receptor um, in a significant proportion of patients with migraine uh, their symptoms are significantly reduced. You know, so this really complex brain disorder can be uh, very effectively treated uh, by targeting just one element of the pathway. And the trip, the triptans work through the receptor. Is that right? They work. They work through uh, a five HT one B and one D receptor. Right. Uh, where where is, is that, Mike? I'm I'm going to be ignorant here, so I I don't. Like this all sounds like this whole thing sounds exciting to me. This CGRP sounds certainly it's a cool name. Yeah. I don't know how people CGRP work this out, but where, where, where is it getting released yeah. from, Michael? Where, is it CGRP, coming from Earth or where, where is it? Why it's wide? It's got two different uh, forms: uh, an alpha and beta form, and it's widely expressed throughout the body. And the recept there are actually several different receptors that can uh, that it can target, not just the canonical receptor. Widely expressed throughout the body, whether it's the uh, the gut, which is richly expressed. Um, We're not talking about brain. neuroendocrine cells. Are we talking about neuroendocrine cells pushing this out, or is it uh, no? It's, uh, no, it's a it's a neurotransmitter. So just so it's, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and possibly other structures as well that secrete. It's a good question. Bit of a tricky one, that one. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it, it is, uh, it's widely expressed, um, both in its, in its, in its, in the array of receptors that pick up on it, um, and its two isoforms. Uh, when people started developing, uh, ways to, uh, to d disrupt the signaling, everyone was worried about potential side effects. 
because it's so widely expressed. Right. How could you possibly block this thing yeah. um, and not cause an issue? So, you know, the, the monoclonal antibodies that, uh, that either target the ligand or the receptor, they probably don't actually get into the brain, which might be a good thing. You know, they're very big protein-based molecules. Yes. They're going to get through okay. blood-brain yeah. barrier. Yes. Uh, probably only about 1% of the stuff gets through, if any, and it's probably, it probably has most of its effect on either these sort of privileged bits of the brain that are sort of half in the blood-brain barrier and half out, like the pituitary gland, uh, or it's work, perhaps more likely working on the trigeminal ganglia itself, which sits outside of the brain and affecting what's happening in the brain mm-hmm. through that. Um, a new class of uh, medicines called the G-PANTS, which will come to Australia probably at the end of next year. They're small molecules uh, that oxygen um, uh, and they'll, they'll, they get into the brain. You could speculate that would significantly potentially disrupt autoregulation of uh, blood supply. So, you know, uh, most of you remember when you, when you look at subarachnoid case studies, for example, you know, autoregulate or, or other intracranial problems, autoregulation is vital uh, to keep adequate perfusion of your, mm-hmm. your brain parenchyma, not too much, not too little. Um, so, and same goes for you know auto regulation of uh, of your hands, for example. So uh, we expected a lot more potential side effects. These drugs tend to be very well tolerated mm-hmm. um, with with minimal side effects. But you know one of the emerging side effects, perhaps just relevant, uh, which just emerged in the last few months, is that patients who are prone to Raynaud's phenomenon yeah. uh, just occasionally, very rarely, can get uh, significant trouble. With, uh, with you know, with even potentially ischemic uh, digits uh, related to the use of monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, that, that, that is fascinating. So some some patients will report migraine. I think, Mark, when they take uh, wine, various red wine or whatever, or I think mm-hmm. in, in the past anchovies was something I sent a member as a medical student. Is that so? Uh, that's probably incredibly rare, but it just sounds like an interesting fish. To stimulate migraine, yeah. is that that the same? We're talking now about some kind of oral response. I'm not sure if that's glossopharyngeal or which, which, but it's just it's all part of this sort of brain stimulus that you're referring to, which ultimately ends up with CGRP or other things also being released. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you could think of um, the you know the example you gave. Uh, I like the anchovy. <laughs> Is that rubbish? Um, I don't know. I just had to remember. Uh, I don't know. Well, it might be for an individual. Uh, maybe there's a bit of MSG in the anchovy. That, that's a <laughs> trigger. But it sort of goes in the, into the into the bag of things, you know, what can trigger a migraine um, in, mm-hmm. in people. And there are some common triggers like stress, let down from stress, in fact, is a more common mm-hmm. trigger. Yeah. Um, uh, other common triggers, uh, low pressure, it, Atmospheric low pressure, like you know, stormy weather, change in weather, mm. hot weather, um, and, and booze either immediately yes. or after a couple of hours. So, you know, all, all these quite common triggers. Um, you know, the stress and letdown from stress thing uh, is a reason why uh, a lot of people for many years, because there was a relationship between stress and propensity to migraine, uh, people were told they just needed to relax. Whereas, you know, the that if you're prone to migraine, the stress might bring it on. But for people who have never suffered headache or aren't prone to migraine, because you can have as much stress in the world as you like and you're never going to get a headache. Mm. 
Yeah. So yeah. it's it's more that you need to have that predisposition. That's that's relevant for things like secondary headaches. So you know maybe if you're unwell with uh, systemic lupus, erythematosus, um, and you don't have any cerebral involvement, you might become migrainous during an inflammatory flare. Um, or, or, or same goes with almost any uh, medical condition, you know. Or if you've uh, if you've got heart failure and you've been given some GTN, uh, it might make you prone to headache. Uh, but if you didn't, if you weren't prone, you know, you you wouldn't be headachey with the GTN. Or maybe you've got erectile dysfunction and you're given Viagra, um, and if you've had a you know even a infrequent migraine in your life, maybe you get headachey on that drug, but, you know, which we use as a as an experimental trigger, both of those two, <laughs> but you, you wouldn't otherwise. But, Mike, I, I want to talk about the treatment a bit more if you've got time to discuss. But with migraine, you, you, there's also there's a vasoconstrictive and a vasodilative, vasodilatory component to it at times. Am I right about that? Controversial. So... Oh, like, you know, I was going to say, how, that, how have we got these two different effects on the vessels if it's no, one model yeah. size being showered out? I, I would put that to the side. Uh, I mean, the we've got good studies, uh, like MRA studies from spontaneous migraine, uh, which really debunk the fact that the pain phase of migraine is yoked to okay. intracranial or extracranial blood vessel diameter. Right. So it's more likely that uh, it's a brain slash uh, neuronal problem and a change in vascular diameter is an epiphenomenon. I, th- I think that's where the field sits at the moment. Uh, you know, we might change our mind in the future, but that's where it sits. Okay. Well, we've got the, the triptans. And uh, I remember when I was quite a young consultant, someone coming around, the rip coming around, just happened to be talking about uh, Immigrant. Um, but we've sort of moved on perhaps beyond triptans now to these antibodies that you're referring to. If you see someone with migraine, are you, you're seeing difficult patients, of course, but are you going to use a triptan-type molecule first or some one of the more traditional older molecules, or do you tend now to just reach for these very effective monoclonal antibodies? Or how yeah, do you so, your therapy? Yeah, so it's kind of two different bags. So, you know, for most people, they've just got um, episodic headache, episodic migraine, and, you know, maybe a few times a week, uh, sorry, a few times a month or maybe around that period, and... Um, the uh, you don't need to be on a preventive medicine you know either a tablet you take every day or a few times a day or or uh, a once a month injection you can you know you feel like the migraine's coming on you take something um hopefully you've got a regimen that's effective and then you know job done uh, so you reactive rather it's only when they're quite frequent yeah. or really troublesome um, that you start thinking about the preventive side of things. So, you know, triptans, uh, uh, they've been available since the 90s, um, and there are even things, as there's a whole set of different uh, tools you have uh, in treating migraines acutely, uh, be, uh, and it rolls from NSAIDs, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, uh, uh, naproxen, a good dose of aspirin, often more effective than either of them. 
uh, maybe an anti-emetic like metoclopramide or uh, which may also affect the or help with the migraine itself or zofran which just helps with the nausea um, and maybe one of the triptans and they could even be combined uh, together so that's sort of acute regimen um, and for people with really regular headache you might have them on a preventive like like um galconezumab you know monthly injection and uh, but they'll still get a migraine occasionally and uh, hopefully by then you would have finessed the thing that's most reliably helpful you know for some people feel they uh they feel a bit bombed out on on effective triptans and would prefer to to not use them during the day for example everyone's a little bit different and they might just use um couple of neurofin and you know maybe it'll do the job 50 percent of the time okay are the patients that are only on the monoclonal antibodies that, that are under your care do, are they so effective that you often don't need to do or use very much else some of them so you know the the pathway for people um and you know we're talking a lot about migraine because it's it's the it's yeah. the most common morbid sort of headache condition it's the reason most doctors are seeing patients with headache ultimately yeah, you know, the pathway for people is they've, they've tried a whole lot of acute stuff. Um, they've, under the PBS, they need to have failed three oral migraine preventives to qualify and have chronic migraine, which means it's a bit of an arbitrary definition, but it's more than half a month headache. And then they, um, uh, and then they can qualify, and about 25% of them will have a more than 75% reduction in, in in their migraine burden you know some of them virtually no migraine left anymore mm -hmm. so it can go from and you know for practically you know in a in a clinic setting often people have tried four five six different migraine preventives you start this thing and you know in responders either within days or sometimes within or often by the third month you know sometimes sometimes it really is in that third month you see the response um uh, there's usually at least 50 percent uh, meaningful response that's more than 50 percent reduction in migraine days um and yeah it's uh, it can be really useful for people. it sounds extremely effective but mike you botox is something that we love to get that for achalasic patients and it's not on the pbs for achalasia but it is on the pbs for, for headache yeah, it's <laughs> uh, how, does, how does it work for headache this sounds like yeah. a very different i'm not sure how that mechanism ties in with what we're discussing yeah, right. So it's, um, I mean, that's been available since 2014 on the PBS. That's been, that's been useful. Yeah. Um, you know, practically speaking, in our clinics, uh, a lot of, it's a lot of uh, people who have either a modest response to Botox or no response at all that go on to the monoclonal yeah. antibodies. Um, it, it, um, a few sort of pivotal trials a decade ago that showed it was helpful for people with chronic migraine. And uh, the way it works, probably on a number of different levels, it, it stops nociceptive transmission at the level of the nerve ending itself uh, in a presynaptic in, inhibition, stops uh, vesicles being released. So it can help it at that very local level. Right. It, uh, it can uh, relax or weaken some muscles. That's not why we think it works, um, by the way. Mm. Uh, but that that can be useful for things like achalasia, like you said. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know they might have some additional benefit because part of the protocol is injecting around parts of the neck, and the neck's always uncomfortable in migraine. Um, uh, 
There's probably a degree, uh, or there's some component of uh, the onobotulinum toxin that does get carried up anterior growth transmission uh, more centrally. Um, and experimentally, we've shown that it affects signaling deep in the brain itself. So can, um, it probably works on a number of different yeah. levels, and probably that last mechanism is the most important, important thing. It often takes two or three goes to see you know, a meaningful effect. Uh, we always do it twice. Um, and for patients that respond, um, if, you, if you keep going, you, know, you track things three years, five years down the track, the response just continues to uh, improve. So it really dampens down that whole network that's generating all of this. Thank you for clarifying. Think about it like that. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. <laughs> uh, Michael, the other headache, just very briefly, because I've taken up a lot of your time, but cluster headache, which is, uh, as I understand it, a little less, well, it's less common, but mm. perhaps more seen in males. Am I right about that? Than, yeah, a bit more else? common in men. It's, it's a disastrous uh, condition. How do we recognise um, it? What, what would make us think, oh, this person's got a cluster headache? Yes, usually the temporal profile. So if you if someone's coming in uh, looking absolutely perturbed, worst pain they've ever had, um, tends to be unilateral, um, tends to be retroorbital, like a jabbing or uh, torsioning discomfort in the eye. Uh, you know, for people with uh, broken bones, worse than that. Well, who've broken bones in the past, worse than a broken bone, yes. worse than the pain of childbirth for women that report on this. Mm. It's just bloody excruciating. I've got ipsilateral tearing, red eye, swelling around the eye. So cranial autonomic symptoms, sometimes some agitation with it. So that's how you recognize. And it's the temporal profile, 30 to 60 minutes typically, maybe two hours of this awful intense discomfort, which comes on at periodic times. So for most people, you know, maybe... 10th of September every year, they'll get six weeks where they go into what's called bout. And they're prone to experiencing these attacks, you know, maybe at set times of the day. In a um, okay, here's the cluster. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's what cluster headache is, these periodic, awful um, headaches with autonomic symptoms and signs. Is a similar kind of pathogenesis to... Uh, migraine itself it's just, it's yeah a weirdly a weirdly overlapping thing so you know that when you think of that uh, striking periodicity yeah. probably relates to hypothalamic dysfunction you know particularly the superorbital uh, um, uh, nucleus uh, which you know all the uh, which is which is where the master clock of the body sits you know um, it's pretty cool so there's all sorts of weird, weird things around cluster headache. You know, if you move to the northern hemisphere, sometimes things can just track into a different spring, for example. Oh, really? Really? Okay. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of oddness about it. Um, but in a really morbid condition, treated differently to migraine, but with some overlap. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the more you look at them, uh, the, the more overlap you start to see of all of these primary headaches. A lot of that relates probably to the circuitry and the network that gets that gets involved, even if the pathophysiology might be slightly different in different people. So, you know, as to the why of the headache, the yeah. why is usually the hardest question. It's always the hardest question. Uh, Michael, uh, thank you for taking us through this little primer on headaches. Uh, you know, Ernie Butler said, I've got to speak to Michael Ella. He knows the champion of headaches, and I can <laughs> understand 
what he's talking about. You're passionate and you've got an amazing understanding of it. And I've learned a lot just talking to you. So one, thank you very much. Um, lastly, your advice to a young doctor who might be looking at a career, not quite sure which way they're going to go. Let's say they're not going to the dark side. They won't do surgery. They're going to, go into, uh, they're going to do medicine. What would you say about a career in neurology and, you know, sort of the sort of specialty that you've, subspecialty you've chosen? Yeah, listen, I think neurology in general is a really variegated, fascinating uh, thing. We're seeing a lot of improvements in, in imaging and treatment modalities. Yeah. Uh, you know, brain's a very intricate, intimate part of your body, um, uh, so fundamental to, to what being a human is. And, you know, as opposed to 50 years ago where often uh, a lot of the emphasis is on diagnosis and perhaps some feeling of forlorn futility that, well, okay, We've diagnosed the extremely rare condition, but what are we going to do? Uh, you know, that era is very much over, mm. and there are a, a lot of highly effective treatments for conditions like MS and yes. uh, seizure disorders, um, headache, yeah. and um, movement disorders, for example. There are lots of, you know, we, we haven't approached, we haven't gotten to cure for most of these conditions yet. We've got highly effective treatment. Yeah. Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and expertise. It's so kind of you to, to join me today. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for you. uh, your interest. You know, that's been awesome. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for joining in the conversation today with Michael Eller. I really found it fascinating coming to grips with the pathophysiology of migraine and tension headaches. I really did enjoy that conversation, and I certainly hope you have uh, found some enlightenment from our discussions. Uh, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.